Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Over the last few weeks, we've talked to many different people about the pandemic, from historians to economists to financial experts to writers. Uh, but one group of people we haven't spoken to are demographers, experts on population. Uh, Paul Morland is an associate research fellow at Birkbeck College in London, and the author of an extremely interesting book, The Human Tide, which came out early last year. Um, Paul, you wrote in the book that demography is destiny. What does that mean? Well, it's a, it's an old saying attributed to uh, thinkers at various times. It's not entirely clear where it comes from originally. Um, but what it means is that historians can get very wound up in big personalities and in the politics and in the economics and in the wars and the peace treaties and the diplomacy. And they often lose sight of the fact that big forces are driving history. And one of those big forces, and I would argue probably the most important important and the most underrated is the rise and fall of populations. And that's particularly been true in the last 200 years, because in the past, population change was a bit of a random walk. Um, you'd get uh, a growth over a period of time, you'd get things knocked back by by things like the Black Death. But since um, 1900, there's been a real pattern, a real structure to what's happened. And what's happened is, first of all, in the UK, and then more widely in Europe, um, certainly in the US at the same time as the UK, and then more widely among European peoples. And then beyond Europe, you've gone through a similar process, which is collapsing mortality rates, technological progress, which has meant that far few people die, fewer people die, population expands enormously. And then eventually the fertility rate comes down and population stabilise and even go into decline. And that's happened at different places at different times. And my argument in the book is that that process, which started in the UK and actually in the States and went global, has driven so much of world history from the rise and fall of great powers to the um, both the outbreak and the outcome of wars. Is the human tide then coming in or going out? Uh, at the moment, as in as in uh, most points in the past, it's uh, at different phases in different places. So, um, where is it really, really coming in? Um, much of sub-Saharan Africa, fantastic population growth. You've had huge falls in infant mortality, very young growing populations. Um, places like Nigeria growing fantastically quickly. And then it's actually going out in far more places than you would think. So, the point is, when you've had really low fertility rates for a long time, it compounds itself. It's not only the fact that young women are having very few children, but that 
there aren't very many of them because their mothers didn't have many children. And that is true. I sometimes talk about the um, the arc of infertility or the infertile crescent all the way from Portugal to Singapore. You could walk pretty much from Portugal to Singapore and not touch a country with above replacement fertility. So it's true, of course, we kind of know it's true of some of the developed countries, but it's particularly true of Southern and Eastern Europe, countries like Italy, countries like Spain, very much the former communist countries. And it's also now true of much of East Asia. So China, even now it's lifted the one-child policy, has way, way sub-replacement fertility, as have many countries in East Asia. Japan is obviously the oldest society in the world. Um, and it's a trend which will go global. So if, if, it, if the tide ain't gone out everywhere yet, my guess is by the end of the century it will have done. You, uh, you noted in a, in a recent interview that demography likes to play some funny tricks when you least expect it. Is the coronavirus pandemic uh, a funny trick or is it just a blip, uh, the footnote to a footnote in the history of 21st century uh, population? Well, the trouble with the fact that it makes that plays funny tricks is that it, it sort of undermines the argument that demographers know the future. Because, uh, you know, I think I, I can say, I can give you my best view, and then it, it could all it could all come horribly unraveled or, or surprise us all. My best guess at this stage is that this is a blip. Um, if you look back to the Spanish flu, where perhaps 20, perhaps 100 million people die globally, um, it was nevertheless a period of huge population growth um, globally, uh, particularly in Europe, even though you'd have the First World War and you had the Spanish flu. In 1920, the world population and Europe's population was larger than it had been in 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 nineteen in nineteen twenty it was larger than it had been in nineteen ten. Now what's going on today, you have to bear in mind we've got a population seven billion rising. So um it would take an awful lot of deaths to have a real impact on that. That's kind of thing one. And then the other Anthony, thing uh, just as yeah. a matter of interest, and this might seem a, a rather callous question, but how many deaths? Half a billion? A couple of hundred million? To have a real impact in that order, and, and, and nobody thinks it's going to be remotely like that, and of course, you know, we could all be horribly surprised, but as things stand at the moment. But I think the other thing that's really important to understand in this case is that the deaths are happening among older people. And what that mean, it means is you'll see it in the life expectancy data, and there will be a drop in population versus what it would have been otherwise, but it's not going to affect the next generation. It's not going to affect, well, we'll come back to that in a second. Let me qualify that in a minute. But it's not affecting, it, it's only marginally at this stage affecting childbearing people. So it's not going to have ramifications on future generations. I suppose the, the sort of curious question is, with all this lockdown, what's that going to mean to, for fertility? So we're not losing very many women of childbearing age. All other things being equal, it won't affect the size of the next cohort, the next generation. But um, with all this lockdown, um, there, may, there are two effects. And, and I, did, I think it's far too early. We haven't got the data to say what will be the, the overall outcome. One effect would be people at home bored with nothing else to do and up goes the, the birth rate. And I think that's what people tend to think um, uh, classically happens, although um, it's not that straightforward, uh, particularly in these days of very easily available contraception. But the other thing is that people may be saying, I don't want to get pregnant, I don't want to go to hospital, um, 
at the moment. I'm not sure I want to bring a child into the world under these uncertain circumstances. Pregnancy will often mean trips to the doctors and, and trips to hospital long before the child is born. I think I'll put it off. So it's very difficult to know what the impact on the fertility rate will be. In your book, you write, a, uh, you have an interesting phrase, you talk about the older old, I guess this is generation over 80 or 85, who are increasingly prevalent in advanced Western societies. Um, the, the pandemic is going to wipe out the older old, isn't it? I don't think it will necessarily. I mean, this is where we really don't know. If it, if it uh, take a country like Germany, Germany is an, one of the oldest, kind. has the pretty much the second or third highest um, uh, um, median age and a lot of very old people, Germany seems to be getting the numbers down. So the elderly in Germany are not going to be wiped out. The, the great centre of, of people over, aged over 100 is Japan, um, where everything's up in the air. I mean, they, they've been rather late to... Uh, enforce um, social distancing and, and quarantines and so on um, and there the effect could be could be quite significant but if it's got on top of um, we may be surprised how few of the older old die certainly that's where the impact's going to be yes but 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 Italy clearly there's been an impact on the on the very old but again in Italy uh, things seem to be improving quite dramatically over the last week or so um, so Germany and Italy are perhaps counter cases where um, countries with old populations seem to be managing it better. In your book, you note that migration plays a, a very dramatic impact on um, on population growth uh, and on the history of demography. Do you expect the hit to globalization and the rise of nationalism and the seeming re-establishment of hard borders around the world as a, cons as a consequence of, of the pandemic. Do you expect um, the, um, a, a decrease in migration to have an impact on uh, population growth over the next generation? I think there are two really big forces at work um, in terms of migration. On the one hand, you have the aging of the West and also East Asia and this population boom in Africa with huge discrepancies in income. So Europe is a massive magnet to the people, of, particularly of Africa and to some extent of the Middle East as well. And there's just the pure demography and economics, which is driving more and more people over the uh, Mediterranean in particular. And, you know, you've seen similar effects over the Rio Grande in the States. Um, initially Mexicans, increasingly people from further south in, in Latin America. So that's kind of the big force that would indeed drive migration forward. And then there is a counter-reaction and I think we've seen that counter-reaction in the in the vote for Trump um, with his talk about a wall in Mex uh, on the border of Mexico. That seems to have been the, the slogan that we remember most from the uh, from the U.S. election to 2016. Brexit, uh, the analysis suggests, was the, the vote for Brexit was more driven by concerns about migration than anything else. If you didn't like immigration, you were more likely to vote Brexit. That was the the biggest determinant of a Brexit vote, besides age. 
Um, so you're getting this counter reaction, and on and and that's the kind of before the pandemic. Now, where's the pandemic going to leave us? On the one hand, I think it does play to paranoia, it does play to fears, and it plays to people saying we should shut up our borders. On the other hand, certainly in the UK, what we're seeing is a huge dependence on foreign workers in our care homes, in our hospitals, and only in the last day or two we've flown in a large number of workers from Eastern Europe to pick our crops that would otherwise be um, rotting in the field. So before the pandemic, there were two forces in conflict. The pandemic actually reinforces both of them. It reinforces the resistance, but in many ways it also reinforces the need for uh, labour. Uh, Paul, I'm talking to you from Silicon Valley, where some people believe that life can be infinite. Um, what is your take on the Silicon Valley movement to allow us, in theory at least, to live forever? Well, I am asked that question quite often, and I feel as a demographer, fascinating though the question is, I feel uh, it's a little beyond my uh, knowledge. Of course, I follow people like Ray, Ray Kurtz while I'm absolutely fascinated with what they're doing. Um, I don't have the uh, knowledge, really, to say whether uh, there is a sort of natural limit of around 100. It's usually the oldest person alive is 117, and then they're Japanese and a woman. Um, and of course, well, what- let, let, let me rephrase the question yes. then. But, um, if, if we could indeed, as people like Kurzweil believe and Peter Thiel believe, we could, with the right, uh, with the right pills, live forever particularly in the advanced wealthy West, what impact would that have on demography elsewhere? Would it reduce the population in poorer continents like Africa? Well, I think, it, it, like most of these things, what starts out as a rich man or rich woman's toy becomes um, generally desired and eventually becomes a human right. So I think if we... It, let, let's not even talk about the crazy science fiction of living forever. Let's imagine we could guarantee living for two, to 200 or 250. Um, I think that would completely... Rev First of all, as I say, I think it would... Uh, the, the pressures to make that affordable and available... Um, what would seem enormous. Um, things that were once luxuries like foreign holidays become rights quite quickly. Basic medical care, uh, th th sort of interventions which were once um, the rights or, or, or the p potentials for very small numbers of people are now seen as, as, as needing to be available to everyone. So I think it will, it will go global. And then I think if we can live that long, I think will have a very big impact on the whole way that people lead their lives. And one thing it will affect is the age at which people get married, the age at which people have children. I mean, the, the whole institution of marriage, of course, is itself in question. But I think it will have an, a powerful effect, quite possibly, on fertility. And what it could mean is that for a very long period, people choose to put off having their children if, if they can extend their fertility. I mean, the other interesting thing in sci in, on the sort of sci-fi side of things is we've already very significantly divorced sex from procreation. So sex without procreation is extremely common. In a way, it wasn't in the past. Um, procreation without sex is becoming increasingly common. So I guess in a kind of Kurzweilian world, not only do you, uh, let's say, not live forever, but live for two, three, four hundred years, and that, I think, changes everything, but also quite potentially you... 
um, create your offspring in in a quite different way. And um, not only is it divorced from sex, but of course it it is very much about designer babies and so on. So um, the dem- demography shades off into sci-fi in both these respects. Yeah, and I won't even bring up having sex with smart machines or settling on other planets. Please that's don't. Even more, <laughs> that's even more science fictional. But let's come back down to earth. Let's go back to your funny tricks. One thing which is very much down to earth is the um, the environmental crisis. Do you think that in the long run, the um, the the environmental crisis, global warming, will have a much bigger impact on twenty first century demography? than pandemics? I don't think it will. And I'm, a, I'm an optimist in these respects. And the reason I am is I'm very much influenced by um, a, an American thinker, actually, Julian Simon. I don't know whether you or your listeners are familiar with him. But it, it, the, the sort of Simon view of the world, let, let me put it in my own words, um, if you, if you take the world of 200 years ago, where to keep warm, you needed to burn a fire, to move around, you needed to feed horses and pastures. Um, and think of all the progress we've made since then. You've got light bulbs, which don't emit heat. You've got um, motor cars, which are becoming more and more efficient. That's all the result of human ingenuity. But actually, only a small number of people have really been able to participate in that journey. Most people have been illiterate until fairly recently. The vast majority of people, I mean, even when I went to university in the 80s, um, the vast majority of Brits didn't go. Now we're getting more and more literacy in the uh, developing world. We're getting more and more people going to university. I think the great enterprise of human learning and science is growing. We're getting more and more networked and able to communicate with others. And so I think so many of these technological, uh, even environmentally, environmental problems can be resolved technologically. And I think there's so much more human brain power coming on stream to solve these problems, I think we'll be astonished by the progress we're going to make in 30 years, whether it's solar power or ways of capturing carbon or things you and I can't even think about now. I think we'll be astonished how technological progress will allow us to continue living uh, highly uh, advanced lives without damaging the environment. And already we can see it in many places. Um, I've I spend a lot of time in rural France, and France overall isn't losing people, but there's rural depopulation, there's large areas going back to nature, there are wild boar proliferating, there are bears and wolves returning to departements where they haven't been for decades, and yet um, that's not at the expense of, of French living standards. Paul, you seem defiantly optimistic. Does anything keep you awake at night, at least um, as a demographer? Uh, Well, I have three children, so they sometimes keep me awake (laughs) at night, um, whether that's as a demographer or not. So what worries me demographically, I think, is that... um, there are many countries and there are many civilizations and societies which seem to have lost the will to... um, continue to exist really without having a reasonably large number of children uh, you mean least, uh, japan and italy in particular well, as i said it starts with japan and italy but it's you know it now includes china um it, 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 it more and more of the world is coming into a low fertility pattern and when races cultures peoples don't wish to re- pro- procreate and recreate themselves um when they don't 
value children and, and I'm not talking about families of six or seven or eight. I'm not talking about being unable to control your fertility. I'm talking about being able to control it and not wanting to have children. Um, then I think the future of those societies, communities is in doubt. And the ones that will survive are the ones that do indeed have a, a pronatal instinct. So you're suggesting that everyone locked at home now should switch off the lights and uh, and, and start procreating? I think uh, people must make their own decisions and societies and cultures must decide whether they do want to thrive and su survive or not. But that decision ultimately is down to the individuals locked at home today. Yeah, it's an interesting idea that uh, collectively we have a, a will to survive uh, it's almost Nietzsche. And fi finally, uh, Paul, I know you, you, you came to demography later in life uh, after you, you got your initial university degree. For people listening who are intrigued by demography but don't know much about it, what would be, apart from your book, The Human Tide, what would be a good introductory text? Um, there's some very interesting books by a an Italian called Livy Bacchi. I'm sorry, that's not a, a name that kind of rolls off the uh, off the lips. But he wrote a book called A Concise History of World Population, um, and it's available in paperback. So I would certainly recommend that. Um, more recently, if you want to get a sense of the Dem dem demographic challenges over the Mediterranean, I would. Um, refer to Smith's The Scramble for Europe, also available, I think, in paperback, which came out last year. And a very good book by a friend of mine, um, which is a decade old, but still relevant, um, Eric Kaufman's Kaufman, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth, which looks at how some communities do have the will to survive and procreate, and how that's very often related to demography. And finally, I would recommend my forthcoming book, um, Tomorrow's People, which is where the human time is about uh, the history of demography. Tomorrow's people is going to be about today and tomorrow and contemporary trends. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.